Please be seated. Part of the challenge of being a uh, guest preacher is choosing a text to preach because as you're preaching, you want to leave people with the savor of Christ, but you also want to help to show them the connectedness of Scripture, the flow of Scripture, the organization of Scripture. God has called us to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so one of the challenges faced to a guest preacher is uh, picking a passage because he doesn't have very long to preach. So my challenge was finding a message that would be timely, a message that would be helpful, and a message that would show the whole flow and scope of Scripture while showing you Christ. And so while I initially wanted to bring to you a message from the third chapter of the book of James, I elected to preach to you the whole epistle, the scope and the focus of it. Because I think that if we're honest, a lot of us, when we think about the epistle of James, it sort of feels disconnected to us. Not really sure exactly what it's about. We know it has something to do with wisdom. It's very practical. It says things about taming the tongue, about impartiality, but then it also has things to say about the doctrine of faith and even about justification. It says things about God. It says things about others. And so we often wonder, okay, where does this epistle land? And so my hope this morning is to uh, enable you to approach this epistle with a little more clarity, with a vision of Christ before you, the savor of Christ, really to make this epistle more accessible for all of us. It certainly has become so for me. So the organizing principle will be an analogy. The analogy that uh, the writer of the epistle picks up on himself of a harvest, a harvest of righteousness. And I'll move through the epistle with three points in this way. There are two perspectives, two perspectives on life, particularly life in the midst of trial, two faiths that respond to life and to those trials, and finally two harvests. You'll notice those of you who like to take notes, that deviates from what is on the back of your bulletin. That is my mistake. But again, the organizing principle will be two principles, and then two faiths, and finally two harvests. So we'll open up now in James. Originally, I intended to read the whole epistle. That, upon practice, take, takes a bit too long. So we'll read select portions. Hear the word of the Lord in the book of James, chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is con- when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, apply it to our hearts in your Holy Spirit's power, in the precious and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Whenever you approach a book of the Bible, especially the epistles, one thing you want to ask yourself is, how does he start? How does he begin writing? What is the first thing he says? Well, the epistles usually begin with a greeting, addressing who they're talking to. And then immediately after that, in Paul's epistles, he begins usually with a prayer, a prayer that reveals some of his heart for that particular church and some of the concerns he's going to address in that letter. In the epistle of James, the first thing that we hear him say after greetings is, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. For you know, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. There are a number of assumptions that are baked into this opening. The first assumption is that we will face trials in this life. And that perhaps is the most important assumption we need to keep before us as we're approaching this epistle. Life, the walk of faith in this life for believers is marked with trials. And how we respond to those trials reveals the faith that is in us. How we respond to those trials is in one of two ways, is informed by one of two perspectives. Either the wisdom that comes from above or the wisdom that is from below that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What is this wisdom from above? That's the title of this sermon, after all. 
In this epistle, James talks about that wisdom that is from above in the third chapter. The wisdom from above, he says, is first pure. It's first pure. But then, it's also peaceable. It's gentle. It's full of good fruits. It's impartial. It's open to reason. It's merciful. It's sincere. That's the wisdom from above. And I want to point out to you this word here that's in the third chapter, the wisdom from above. From above is the same word that is found in John chapter 3. When Christ says you must be born again. Anothen. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must have a new perspective, not like the one that you get here on earth. You need to be born from above if you're going to respond to this world of trouble and trials, this wilderness that we learned of last week. The first perspective, however, that I want to show you is the wisdom from below by way of contrast. In this first chapter, when we read, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, the assumption latent there is that uh, we need to be instructed to count it all joy. We need to be instructed to count it all joy because usually when we face trials, we think we shouldn't. We think, what's going on? Aren't I a good Christian? Haven't I done everything the right way? Haven't I dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's? Why is this happening to me? We think that our faith shouldn't be tested. But furthermore, the wisdom from below says that the way of righteousness is that way of precision and uniformity and triumph all the time. The way to achieve perfection is through ordering your life in such a way by your own hands and your own skill that no trouble will ever come to you. When trouble comes, we've made some mistake, some blunder. Well, what have I done wrong? Why is God punishing me? I was so careful. We start to get a little angry, indignant. We start to look around for someone to blame. Mortal wisdom, the wisdom from below, despises and falters under trials. It both despises and falters under trials. And so James says that we need to count it all joy. He's instructing because our natural assumption is that trials shouldn't have to come. Trials are a surprise when they really shouldn't be. But furthermore, mortal wisdom rejects God's wisdom as disadvantageous. Disadvantageous. Read there verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But mortal wisdom, it can be assumed by this very recommendation Mortal wisdom knows that it lacks wisdom, but doesn't want to ask for it. Ask God. If you lack wisdom, if you're not sure how to approach this situation, if you're not sure how to respond, ask God. And we need to be instructed because normally we don't want to ask for wisdom. Or when we do, mortal wisdom doubts God. Mortal wisdom doubts and really believes that true wisdom lies in here, in ourselves. When we face trials, have you ever lost something? Something that was important to you? 
or had a carefully laid plan that suddenly fell apart, through no fault of your own, perhaps, and you face that trial, and then you go to God to ask for wisdom. You ask for his wisdom, you say, Lord, I don't understand. And it even sounds like a Christian prayer. Lord, grant me wisdom in this situation. Grant me wisdom in this situation. But then, as we respond to it, when we finish praying, we have to get back to the problem at hand. We lash out in anger. Or we seek our own advantage. Or we malign and ridicule and put down others to bring ourselves up. Could it be that the wisdom that is from above is giving us this trial to suggest to us maybe the problem is not the loss of the good thing, but the bad thing that you hold on to so hard? The anger, the partiality, the malice, the lawlessness that's at bottom, that's exposed when we face trials. We ask for wisdom, and when God says, maybe the problem's your anger, no, couldn't be. That's not my problem. Anger's got nothing to do with it. I'm just mad. I don't have a right to be mad. Mortal wisdom rejects God's wisdom. But it also, by extension, boasts in material goods, more than spiritual goods. You see, these trials are intended to bring about perfection. It says in verse 4, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Yet we think that if we have all the things of this life, the goods and possessions of this life, then we'll be perfect, then we'll be righteous. Doesn't that include information? Doesn't that include the things that we don't know about? Doesn't that include the things that we so desperately want to discover and can't? We value this life more than eternal life. And so he says in verse 10, Let the rich boast in his humiliation, not his exaltation, because like a flower of grass he will pass away. Mortal wisdom clings to this life and thinks that it's guaranteed. Thinks this life is guaranteed. Demonstrated again by his reaction to his trials. This perspective of mortal wisdom exposing what is truly valuable to him. His life. This life. Or as James says in chapter 4, what is your life? What is your life? You're going to pass away as quickly as the flower that falls Finally then, on this perspective of mortal wisdom, mortal wisdom suspects God's goodness and accuses him even of evil. It says there in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God promises the crown of life. And when we face trials, we take that crown and we dash it on the ground with mortal wisdom and say, I don't want that. I want this thing. I want, I want information. I want a promotion. 
I wanted an extra hour of sleep. And we get really, really bad perspective with mortal wisdom. We forget who God is and what he promises precisely when those promises are meant to comfort us. Precisely when in the midst of trials we should be looking to God, we look to those things he took away. And it deceives us. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Don't be deceived. Those things you think you need, you really don't. Don't be deceived. Mortal wisdom causes us to suspect God's goodness so that we love not God who is good, but the gifts he gives. All of this, 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 this kind of laundry list of the perspective of mortal wisdom is the root of malice and envy and selfish ambition setting our eyes on this world, on that extra hour of sleep, on the relaxation I was expecting to have when I got home from work, on having the playtime in my room I was expecting, on going outside, on staying inside, getting to work on time, getting there late so I could avoid that conversation. Whatever it may be, the things of this world, fixing our eyes on them gives us the wrong perspective so we need that wisdom from above, from above, anothen. What are the marks then of divine wisdom in the midst of trial? We're spending a lot of time in the first chapter. We're going to move a little more quickly through chapters 2, 3, and 4, but I assure you this is quite important and foundational. There's a reason James starts this way. The marks of divine wisdom. Again, let's turn back again to verse 2 and following. Divine wisdom, for one thing, receives trials from God as good gifts. Trials are good gifts from a loving, heavenly Father. Because, James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. We know. We know with the divine perspective that these trials are intended to prove the genuineness of our faith. Have you ever struggled with assurance? Trials are intended to help give you that assurance so that when you fall seven times, as it says, when you fall seven times and rise again, you can be assured God is yet working in you. God is yet sustaining you to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. But I stumble all the time you also rise. That's what repentance is. Good gifts, trials, good gifts, not just obstacles on the way to perfection. Yes, there are those, but they're also good gifts. Trials prove the genuineness of our faith and expects them, expects them. We will meet trials of various kinds. And in this book, you're going to hear of particular trials it seems that James is referring to material trials, a perhaps shift in expectations from wealth to poverty, poverty to wealth. There's a bit of a disparity there that he's talking about, but that he says, trials of various kinds, shows us this book is applicable to any kind of trial, not just a loss of money. 
So let's pay attention. Wisdom, furthermore, divine wisdom that is from above, receives God's implanted word with meekness. We're moving ahead a little further here, but in verse 21, it says, Put away filthiness and rampant wickedness, that is, the fruit of this worldly wisdom. Put away those things and instead receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It is able to save your souls. The fact is we lack wisdom. We lack wisdom and divine wisdom. Divine wisdom is that which prays for wisdom sincerely because we recognize that he is the only source of wisdom. He is the only source of wisdom. And it recognizes that the word of God is the only source of wisdom, not ourselves. Wisdom boasts in its lowliness and humiliation Valuing eternal life more than this life. Realizing this life is not guaranteed to us. And finally, divine wisdom believes God's goodness. And trusts him even in the midst of trial. Remaining steadfast. That's the divine perspective. That's the perspective of divine wisdom. Blessed is the man. Blessed who remains steadfast under trial. You ever gotten bad news and been able to rejoice in it? You're blessed. Have you ever gotten the outcome you weren't hoping for? Have you been disrupted, thrown off your course? Have you stumbled in a trial and said, the Lord gave and the Lord took away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. You're blessed. Because it's not the stuff of this world that matters. It's the stuff of heaven. And not just the stuff of heaven in this ambiguous sense, but the substance of heaven himself. That's what matters. Divine wisdom recalls God's promises. Whereas forgetting God's promises is the way of mortal wisdom... Divine wisdom recalls God's promises and holds him guiltless of wrongdoing. I am being tempted by God, mortal wisdom says, not divine wisdom. Divine wisdom says, he's promised I'm going to be an heir of the kingdom. Do not fear, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, says the Lord Christ. And James reiterates that in chapter 2, verse 5. But it also loves God more than his good gifts. Again, that's the perspective. Loves God more than his good gifts and desires most of all that crown of life. Remember? Verse 12. That crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. What more could you want than the crown of eternal life so that you could be with him whom you love forever? Far better than any good in this life is that crown of life. That allows us to be with him forever. And finally, trust him. Divine wisdom, trust him. Trust that he does not lie and uses trials to perfect our faith, not to destroy it. It may seem that God intends to crush us, but like a cartwheel rolls over the wheat grain in the ground, the intent is not to crush it. The intent is not to crush it, but to press it down. To press it down into the soil. That it may die and rise and reap a harvest a hundredfold. 
And so these two perspectives, these two perspectives are like two fields, the field of folly and the field of wisdom. Think in the Old Testament when Abraham and Lot are looking at the, uh, the two options before them. Here's Sodom and Gomorrah. Looks good. Big city. Opportunity. Close to the hub. Lots of restaurants. Lots of people. Opportunity. Ambition. That's where I'm going, says Lot. And over here is the promised land. Canaan. Looks like a desert. Rocky. Not good soil, usually, in a lot of places, and yet watered by the Lord. Watered by the Lord. Who promises to do us good? Who promises to do Abraham good and his descendants? These two fields. Well, these fields need to be plowed, don't they? And so there are two faiths, two expectations that plow these fields. Moving on then to verses 19, or chapter 1, verse 19, all the way into chapter 4, verse 10, which we do not have time to read today. But I'll be picking pieces out and hoping to give you again the scope of these two faiths, the two outworkings of folly and wisdom. In the first place, James has a lot to say about dead faith, about faith that doesn't work. Read with me verses 22 through 24. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And I want to stop there to make this comment. When we ask for wisdom from God, and God says, well, this trial has revealed that you're rather short-tempered. Here's my wisdom for you today, my son, my daughter. You need to tame your tongue. You need to be impartial. And we say, no, forget that. That's being here of the word and not a doer. That's saying, I believe God and not loving your neighbor. That's dead faith. So read it again. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Down to verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. And so the image I want to present to you today in terms of this dead faith is that of, that of a plowman, his oxen, the yoke, and the harvest then that it leads to. The plowman of this field of folly is the untamed tongue. Throughout the next couple of chapters, we get a couple of sections that are kind of interspersed together about the unbridled tongue, the untamed tongue, but also a lot to say about anger and impartiality. Well, what does it say? Let's look at verse 126 again. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Why? Because the tongue is showing that it's not true. The tongue is showing what's really down there. It's not a living faith. It's a dead faith. In chapter 3, he warns against people becoming teachers because they'll be judged with, with greater strictness. And then he says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits on horses, if we steer ships with rudders, 
And certainly the tongue is a great member, but it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. A world of unrighteousness. The untamed tongue is the means by which our dead faith is principally revealed. And the two sins of anger and partiality are almost like two strong oxen that the tongue uses to plow that field. Anger and partiality. Chapter 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you see the connection he's making here? When we speak out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And if there's anger down there in response to the trial that's going on, stop talking to me. I'm trying to pay attention. This thing's happening. I've got to fix it. Stop talking to me. It comes out. But what can't it do? You're plowing that field, that field of folly, as hard as you can with your tongue and your anger. But it can't produce righteousness. You can't do it. Because it's the wrong field. It's the wrong faith. It's the wrong reaction. It's wrong from top to bottom. It can't do it. The other is partiality. Partiality. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, talks about the sin of partiality. And throughout the epistle, James is very stern with those who treat others with partiality, who say to the rich, Ah, you sit over here, uh, and to the poor, you sit at my feet. What's that doing? It's doing the same thing that anger does to others that we think are weaker than us. But if we think they're on equal terms with us, we kind of, you know, we kind of, you know, Scope them out, you know, kind of give them the up and down, like, okay, how can I press my advantage here? Oh, you're rich? Come on over here. Oh, you're poor? Well, go over there. I don't, I don't want to talk to you right now. It's the same thing. We're trying to press our advantage if we're partial. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Again, he's speaking about those who have the perspective of this world, the wisdom of this world that says riches, wealth, things of this world, information, ambition, malice, rivalry. Aren't these the ones that blaspheme you? You want to you go with them? Don't. Don't desire to be with evil men. Don't desire that. They will corrupt your desires. But if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. When you say to somebody, disregarding them, get out of my face. I don't want to talk to you. Maybe you're not angry, but you disregard them. That's murder. It's the same thing as anger. Well, these two oxen plow that field fruitlessly. 
fruitlessly for righteousness, yoked together by a common yoke. And that is self. That is self. Chapter 3, verse 16 shows this pretty pretty plainly. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Every vile practice. Selfish ambition. It says in the first chapter, verse 14, that we're tempted when we're led away by our own desires. Our own desires are those things that produce disorder and every vile practice. And what's the harvest? What's the harvest of these things? Wickedness and death. Desire, it gives birth to sin, James says in chapter 15. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It gives forth death. Self and sin are conceived in the same womb. The womb that is from below. What causes quarreling and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's dead faith. Friendship with the world. Enmity with God. What about this faith that works then? In the field of wisdom, with the divine perspective, it is the plowman that works, the faith that works. Chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. For, James says, and we don't have time to get into all the implications of this, we are justified by works and not by faith alone. He's referring to Abraham. And just as a little side note here, if someone ever says to you that Paul and James disagree on justification, here's for your comfort and edification. James is not talking about edification. He's not talking about justification principally. He's talking about faith and a particular genre of faith. Dead faith. Dead faith. Dead faith shows that you are dead. By your works. But... You are justified by works, not that you are justified before God, but you are justified before men. It even says in chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise? Show by your conduct. By your conduct in works of wisdom. So the plowman is faith that works in this field. Faith that keeps the law. These are the two oxen, as it were, the law and the gospel. If you truly keep the perfect law and look into the law of liberty, James says, if you truly do that, then you do well. What is the law of liberty? We've been freed. We've been freed from the law of sin. We've been freed from the law of works. The law of liberty is that law we keep when we are saved by the gospel. And these things are yoked together by one common thread. They're yoked together in love. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only living faith. But then down in verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Because what is the sum of the law? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the sum of the law, love. And who is he who is called love incarnate? Christ. You see, faith plows this field of wisdom by keeping the law and the gospel, holding the faith with a pure conscience. But unyoked together, law and gospel start to split apart and it's useless. The law and the gospel need to be held together and there's only one who can do that and that is Christ. That is the love of Christ. And what is the harvest? The harvest of this faith, the faith that works, is righteousness. A harvest of righteousness and its end, eternal life. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. The wisdom from above is first pure. It keeps the law and the gospel. It's first pure and then peaceable. Not angry, not prone to malice or impartiality. It's gentle. It's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And if an answer to that phrase, the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God, it says in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We need to know plainly then that God is no respecter of persons, not like us. God is not impressed with our talk. And we need to humble ourselves because God, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James says. We need to beware of token faith, the kind of faith that tries to twist God's arm as if by magic words that we think, oh, I can pray for wisdom and say, God, give me wisdom. Or God, help me not to be angry without expecting trials that naturally put us in the way of being tempted to anger. Not that God tempts us, but that our desires do. We need to expect these trials and not be double-minded and show our wisdom by our works of faith. In the last place then this morning, we need to talk about the two harvests. And this comes in James 4, verses 11 through the end of the book. The first harvest is that harvest of wickedness. The harvest of wickedness that is lawlessness, sinfulness, and condemnation. You know, the word law appears in the book of James just about as much as the word faith does. And in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, James says this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He's talking about the church. He's talking about us, one another. Do not speak evil against one another. Chapter 4, verse 11. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When we demonstrate our sinful and foolish perspective in works of malice and rivalry and ambition, anger, towards those who we perceive are weaker, partiality. What we're really doing is we're being lawless. We're being like our father in hell if we have no father in heaven. For he is the one who is lawless. He is the one who speaks malice. He is the one who is ambitious. 
He is the one who is angry and murderous. We do these things, we make ourselves a judge of the law and say, God's law, not so good. I know a better way. Take of that tree. Take of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. You are very wise, oh man. Lawlessness. That is the malicious root of mortal wisdom. And selfishness is the vile fruit. Like, like dog vomit. You ever seen dog vomit? I did this morning. It's gross. It is disgusting. It is repulsive. It churns your stomach. And that is what God says comes out of us. That comes out of us. When we fix our eyes on this world, when we put down those who we think are lesser than us, when we react in anger to our trials, dog vomit, vile, and it's selfishness. Whoever knows the what is right and fails to do it, he says in chapter 4, verse 17, and fails to do it, that is sin. God is as much serious about our indulgence as he is about our dereliction of duty. And so we need to be careful not to be derelict in our duty, but to do what is right in the day of righteousness. But those who are selfish, what does it say in chapter 5, verse 6? You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You have laid up wages. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Behold, the wages of the laborers you, who mowed your fields that you held back are crying out against you. And God hears that cry because he is the judge. What is the end of this harvest then? The miserable end of mortal wisdom is condemnation. God will judge. He is the only judge. And that's the path we walk whenever we start to consider in the midst of our trials, mortal wisdom. Why is this happening to me? God, why, why have you done this? I know a better way. Stop talking to me. I wanted an hour of sleep and I didn't get it. It gives me a right to be angry. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Its end is the cry of those who are oppressed against us that God will answer with justice. That's the end of mortal wisdom. It says there in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Who is the righteous person that we condemn when we stand in judgment over the law? Who fulfilled the law? Wasn't it Christ? When we seek what is not ours, what we don't have, we condemn Christ and crucify him in our hearts. But this is a good example for us. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. But does the righteous person stay dead? He can't. Because God cannot allow his righteous one to see corruption. And so because Jesus rose from the dead, the first fruits of a harvest of righteousness, so shall all who endure steadfast under trial. Faith, that's the patient root of divine wisdom, of wisdom that is born from above. A true faith, an active faith, which says in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 5, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
that righteous person who endured every trial for our sakes. And not only that, but we need to be prayerful. Prayerfulness is the powerful fruit of divine wisdom. And James enumerates a couple of examples. He talks about Job being the example of patience and suffering. And then of Elijah as a man with a like nature as ours, prone to stumble, prone to sin, prone to anger, prone to being questioning. God, you have left me alone. I alone am the only, am the only one in Israel who serves you now. How wrong he was, but God restored him as well. Prayerfulness is the fruit of wisdom. We pray, we hear God's word, and we do it. See that connection? We pray, we hear God's word, and then we do it. That's powerful prayer. That's efficacious prayer. Not just waiting around for God to do something, though he does certainly, but acting when he gives us the wisdom that is from above. Powerful prayer is the fruit of wisdom. And the end is salvation. Look at these last verses of the whole book. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That is what Jesus did. That is what Jesus did when he walked through this life and faced every single trial that we encounter. Made like us in every ways. And perhaps you've noticed in this epistle just how frequently James calls them brothers. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call those who are born again of the same womb as he. He was born of the Spirit, and so are we. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, and he's not afraid to bring us back. But, in closing, as we consider him, we need to consider the multitude of our sins, our suspicions of God in trial, our anger towards him and others, our selfish ambition that led us there and that is exposed in our trials. Those sins which the steadfastness of his faith covered. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner, that's Christ, from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And finally, we need to consider that we have yet many more trials ahead of us. And we will either react based on the perspective that comes from above or on the perspective that comes from below. Let us then heed the example of Christ, who above all was wise, and the word of Scripture that says, he who wins souls is wise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you at the end of this time of your word, and we pray that it would go down into our hearts and that it would bear much fruit. Help us not to be fools. Help us not to live in this world as though it's our only home. Help us not to revile one another. Help us not to seek our own advantage, but to be like Christ, who did not raise his voice, who did not seek his own vindication, but waited patiently for the vindication of God. And I pray, God, that each one of us today be seeking the wisdom that comes from above so that we too might receive the crown of life. Oh Lord, we thank you that you delight to crown our love 
with your life. And so we pray that we would keep ever before us Christ our Savior who has brought us back from our wanderings. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll respond now by singing.